We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We were supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. I know kung fu. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This whole thing is insane. This whole thing is insane. 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of Zombieland. This whole thing is insane. Man is evil, capable of nothing but destruction. Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert. Of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? You're such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it is, it just is. Especially with the latest AB Live. Audio version for thee in this eternal now and in this red pill cafeteria. The mystery religions thrived in ancient times. Vital secret societies and initiations into esoteric experiences. As secretive as they were, we can somewhat construct their rituals and results, from the mysteries of Demeter to the cultish rites of Mithras and everything in between. Is it possible that Gnosticism and Christianity started as mystery religions? What is the evidence for this, and what gifts do their primordial forms offer us? Podcaster and researcher Elliot Saxton Join the virtual Alexandria to answer all of this and more. As mentioned in the interview, many of the sects and secret rituals are mentioned in great detail in my course, the Virtual Alexandria Academy. From the Ophides to the Book of You to so much more. So join now and get lifetime membership. There are new courses added periodically. Learn at your leisure. Enjoy more than 20 courses at 30 plus hours. Dozens of interactive quizzes and downloadable materials included. Perfect regardless of your knowledge of Gnosticism and valuable for spiritual or intellectual growth. From the Gnostic Jesus to the fall of Sophia, from the Gospel of Thomas to magical texts, from Simon Magus to the secret of Gnosis, it's all here and nowhere else online. The feedback has been phenomenal and many participants tell me it's expanded their knowledge and even spiritual dimensions. Don't forget my voiceover availability for any podcast, commercial, audiobook, documentary, video game, or whatever. I'll bring you stellar results with down-to-home professionalism. Other than that, let us do our latest AB Live.
Now, according to the normal way of thinking about the, uh, the Christian religion, uh, we cannot identify with Jesus. We have to imitate Jesus, but to say, I am God, as Jesus said, is for us uh, blasphemy. Mm-hmm. However, in the Thomas Gospel, Jesus says, He who drinks from my mouth will become as I am, and I shall be he. Wow. That's Buddhism. Mm -hmm. We are all manifestations of Buddha consciousness, only don't know it. And the Buddha, the word means the one who waked up, bud, to wake, woke up to the fact that he was Buddha consciousness. And we are all to do that. To wake up to our Jesus within us, this is blasphemy in the normal way of thinking in Christianity, but it's the very essence of Gnosticism and of the Thomas Gospel. And heaven, that uh, desired goal of most people, is, is within us? All the gods, all the heavens, all the worlds are within us. They are magnified dreams. And what dreams are, are manifestations in image form of the energies of the body in conflict with each other. And uh, that's all myth is, a manifestation in uh, symbolic images, metaphorical images of the energies within us in conflict with each other. So when we dream, are we fishing in some vast ocean of mythology that we It goes down and down and down. Welcome, everybody. Yes, men have nipples still on this Groundhog Day. Happy Groundhog Day. I hope everybody's having fun with your eternal return. I hope you're learning something with the, all the millions and trillions versions of you. We've already had this conversation. I've already said this countless times. And certainly it should be something to learn because our topic is uh, one of my favorite topics because it ties right into Gnosticism and Hermeticism, and that is the mystery religions. And yes, in any version and all the multiple reoccurrences, eternal returns, I am still Miguel Connor, your pompous of Gnosis. Glad to see everybody tonight. I see you in the chat room. Hello, everybody. Uh, Good to see uh, all these very cool people who sometimes have just amazing things to say in the chat room. Appreciate your company, your questions, and your support. So, yes, the mystery religions. We're going to talk about that. And with us for this, we have Elliot Saxton. Elliot, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Pleasure is all ours. Uh, I like what you do. And with us, too, we've got the mystery man himself, uh, the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, very mysterious tonight. <laughs> the Sphinx for mystery men, huh? Yes. Uh, mysterious. Everybody looks a good mystery, so everybody loves a good mystery religion, right? So mm-hmm. we'll find out about them tonight, won't we? Yeah, it looks like your bird's ready to have a little uh, mystery of Osiris. Yeah, he's a mystery in himself, you know. <laughs> I guess Thoth. I guess Thoth, you need a bird he's a god. Cosmic right? chicken. <laughs> Abraxas, yeah. Yeah, he's a close rela- relation. <laughs> <laughs> They're cousins who don't talk. So right. it happens. 
It happens. Awesome. Well, you guys know the rules in the chat. Uh, Elliot has a really cool presentation for us tonight. We will try to get to your questions afterward. Please, uh, all caps, all question marks. If you can do a super chat, we will make sure to get to you because then we can see it real fast. So before we get started, Elliot, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do or how did you come into these heresies? Well, let's see. So I have a YouTube channel, Brave New History, relatively new. Um, yeah, so I mean, I grew up evangelical and just um, looking into apologetics, you know, because, you know, I was a little bit unsure what's going on here. And as I'm looking into it, I found it to be a little weak sauce, right? And just learning into all the stuff we've taken for granted, like the gospel writers, uh, actually like John was written by John, right? All the epistles were written by who they say they were. And you almost have this vision of a King James Bible just floating down from heaven, right? And that's how we got the Bible, right? And just learning about how this stuff pieces together, right? That there was, there was earlier thought, there was later thought and, the idea of a mystery, like a murder mystery, that's a fitting analogy in that, you know, we're, we're really into, especially, you know, there's that, uh, that chapter, if you've seen that on YouTube or the, the woman who does her makeup and talks about, you know, murder mysteries, it's mm -hmm. a lot like that. How did Christianity come about? Right. There's a million suspects and we think we have an idea. But if it's a lot like a lot of these true crime deals, the real thing just comes out of nowhere. Right. So it could just be something that, uh, you know, is a very much a minority opinion or really nobody considered. So that's that's an interest of mine is just what happened. How did it happen? Yeah, it's a big question. You're right. There's so many streams. Uh, you could say uh, uh, an alien dropped Jesus off, and somehow it's just one of many ideas out there. So we don't know. And the mystery religion is, I think, a very strong one. But unfortunately, most scholars kind of, they don't really, they tippy-toe around that and all that. But uh, it's certainly a strong one, I would say. Yeah, I mean... You know, it runs counter to what, uh, you know, the mainstream is definitely because, you know, the prevailing view, which I think maybe we all hold to, to an extent that it's uh, an outgrowth of Second Temple Judaism. But uh, how exactly, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, exactly. it's, you know, because I was talking to uh, Tovia Singer, mm. who is, you know, um, uh, yeah. a rabbi, and he doesn't think Paul was a Pharisee. Because his right. thought was so Greek. So if we take Paul away from being Jewish, well, what, I mean, they're, yeah, how do you, how do you make it fit in there? Which well, yeah, I think the problem too is, again, this is what most scholars again tippy-toe around. Even saying a Jew 2,000 years ago, there were hundreds of Jewish sects and ideology, you know, there was never a monolith Judaism. So that just makes things more complicated, right? A Jew yeah. from Alexandria, a Essene, a, a, a Jew from Judea. I mean, it was a, it was a big stew. So yeah. where do you go with that? <laughs> yeah. And we're having, you know, we're talking about uh, 
the logos in John and Christ is the word, well, that's Philo, right? And I mean, that it seems not quite Jewish, right? It seems um, at no. least when we're retrofitting, you know, modern theology back to the day, you know, I think that's kind of where we run into the issues. Yeah, and Philo uh, equates uh, the logos with Hermes. So it gets even more. Now we're bringing in these other uh, ideologies. <laughs> yeah. But it is fun. It is fun. But uh, I think, yeah, especially with Gnosticism and Christianity, it's a, it's a murder mystery. Whoever had the knives out, let's put this back in. Gnosticism, a knives out mystery. I think you hit I it in the it. head. I love it. Great job, Douglas. So yeah, yeah this is going to be like uh, like the show Clue, who's who did it, or the many versions of of that one, a classic film. So uh, yeah, I imagine Doctor Frankenfurter. What's his name? The actor. Tim Curry. Tim Curry. Curry. The butler in the movie. Yes. I always say Tim Rice instead of Tim Curry because of (laughs) curried rice. Tim Rice was the yeah. Jesus Christ superstar, I think, one of the writers. Yeah. <laughs> so there's so much. Well, why don't we get into the mysteries? Before we get started on your presentation, and I've seen it, and it's great, what the audience probably wants to know, well, what in the Dickens is a mi- murder mystery? Is it a murder mystery? A mystery religion. And, of course, I asked uh, the flavor of the month of the sen- century chat gpt i think it's overrated it's a hysteria it's great for like freshman college or top the funnel content marketing or you know stuff like that it's like a an assistant wikipedia very disappointed when asked questions about gnosticism is like useless but i decided hey it's it's a flavor so i ask it well what's a what's a, a mystery religion and it says, and I'm reading this simply because for those who are will be listening in the audio version, uh, chat GPT said, a mystery, oh God, I got my own logo on the way. What? Okay, my logo. People can't read, I can't read. Where's the logo? All right. The logos is gone. A mystery religion refers to a type of religious cult or secret society that is known for its secretive practices and beliefs that are only revealed to initiated members. The term, quote, mystery refers to the hidden or esoteric nature of these beliefs, which are believed to bring spiritual enlightenment, transformation, and or a closer connection to the divine. Examples of a mystery religions include the ancient Greek cults of Eleusis and Mithraism, wasn't Greek, as well as early Christian groups such as Gnosticism, hit it in the head. Gnosticism is just blow by blow. So people... Is it a good description? Yes. And uh, Bart Ehrman does a good job, I think, in his book about how Christianity became the dominant religion. And he explains that how we view religion is wrong. In ancient times, the the cult worship is what you did every day. You woke up, you sacrificed to Zeus, you went to Venus, you did this. It was almost like uh, worshiping the gods was like charging your phone. You know, that's they didn't give it much thought is what you did. You know, we don't say thank you to our phone or ask it, will we go to heaven? It was it was it was very materialistic. You sacrifice to the gods so that society in the very universe kind of would keep going. However, there were those who said, no, they wanted an inner experience. They wanted 
an altered state of conscious. They wanted to know the bigger questions of life, take an astral travel, perhaps clean, clean their minds. And the mystery religion was that part that satisfied those who had that thirst and those who had that thirst and went to, from what we know, were transformed. We know that people lost their fear of death. The great philosophers all were part of a mystery religion and it really optimized their mind and their souls. It was, again, the inner part of a religion, which, of course, that's what Gnosticism is. I know Robert Price had this theory, and I, I don't know who he quoted, but he said, some scholars said it was a displacement thing. With the, the cities, the police growing throughout the empire, people would get displaced, and you might get, like, five worshipers of Osiris in Rome, and these guys are like, hey, let's start our club and start worshiping Osiris in secret and doing our thing, but the problem is it doesn't satisfy the thirst of those who wanted the mystery, the deeper questions of life, the experience, the mystical uh, state and all that. So that is a mystery. Anything else I'm missing out, Elliot? Yeah, I mean, that's pretty good. Um, it was a very highbrow thing. So there's a country club aspect to it, like you're a fancy pants if you belong to this. Oh, I thought like uh, slaves and uh, women could attend like the Eleusinian mysteries I mean that could well be I mean in in as a general rule they were um they cost a lot of money to belong yeah yeah because somebody had to pay for these special effects and masks and <laughs> big temples underneath the ground and <laughs> yeah and if I you know I'm by no means an expert but I think the Eleusinian mysteries were kind of um meant for everybody to to join. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, even uh, one another mistake many make is they, people say the cult of Mithras was only for Roman soldiers, and that's Poffrey says, and other philosophers say that women would join. In fact, the cult of Mithras had a uh, order of the hyena, which was for the female uh, initiates for Mithras. So I think that's what's uh, very interesting too so that's one of the um misconceptions that we have uh and again gnosticism is very mystery religion i've got just a couple examples and then we'll get to your presentation and a lot of this is again at the virtual alexandria academy i talk about all these gnostic sects what they were doing what their inner rituals were and so forth and how they were very much the mystery religions their magic and all that but for example, Hippolytus and Refutation of All Heresies, he says the Gnostic Nassines, the serpent worshippers, are a dead ringer to the Eleusinian mysteries. So that's interesting because we, he wrote down in his this massive book, he wrote down, he broke down the Nassine rituals from beginning to end, how they would go through these astral travels. So I think that's it. And of course, again, Hippolytus, a church father, grain of, sa grain of salt, but if you his book talks about the druids, the Brahmin. I mean, he was he's writing this giant encyclopedia just decoding all these religions that are not Christianity. Then you've got Celsus in his famous argument against uh origin, and he mentions that the Gnostic Ophite ritual is very similar to the mysteries of Mithras, which we have uh very little. And I think I got him misspelled Mithras over there. Mithras but it's Mithras. So we have this vibe about the Gnostics being a mystery religion and definitely the church fathers were uh, 
that definitely support this. So, uh, so that's that. Uh, <laughs> Harpo creates face palm. Yeah, that is true. That is true. Misspelling Mithras. Um, all right, awesome. Well, I think for the audience, I hope you guys know what is a mystery religion. I don't know if there are mystery religions today because you agree, Elliot, they were very secretive. You you would be killed. Somebody would send an assassin. And people really kept their mouths shut about the mechanics and exactly what was going on. It was, uh, yeah. it was a secret. It really was. Yeah. So, I mean, in regard to modern mystery religions, you, you almost wonder where to draw the line, right? So we could talk about fraternities and sororities. Freemasonry, which is strikingly similar to Mithraism, a lot of similarities to it. Um, and then when you think about, you know, we could think of Christianity a little bit and that there's some ritual involved, baptism, which maybe has some salvific power, but it's not like you're, you're allowed to talk about it. So maybe in that respect, not so much. Um, yeah, yeah initiatory and i think you're going to make the case that it's there were a mystery religion that was hidden in plain sight for thousands of years so so yeah uh, go ahead and start the uh, presentation take us away all right how let's see how do i get oh um can we get the let's see added to the stream do you All see right, the way to go. change slides when you ho hover over it? Yeah. Okay, so you yep. can do it. If not, I can do it. All right. All right we have another up. Elliot Saxton, probably a Fed or a Freemason spy, whatever. <laughs> That's my guess, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So right here, this image is uh, Mithraeum. So right here, so this is... Uh, where the Mithraists did their thing, right? Back there is a, a scene of Mithras uh, slaying the bull. And um, yeah, so we're thinking what would mystery religions or mystery religion origins of Christianity look like? And this is speculation. And um, we're considering maybe there was secret teachings and ritual uh, within early Christianity. So here's an image that kind of got me thinking about this, that, you know, we look at this and we think, you know, this, this looks a little mystery cultish, right? So there's a bunch of images from the Roman Catholic Church that I think kind of make us think maybe there's something something to this. So here, this is a ritual that they do. These are three priests. And for some reason, they both uh, have this, this uh, banner or blanket over them. It's part of some ceremony. And this looks like it's some kind of. Um, so these are. These are How's that? Michael using it? Okay. Vance, you're not on mute. <laughs> Oops, sorry. You keep going. <laughs> yep. So this looks a little bit uh, 
mysterious, dressed like wizards. I'm not sure exactly what's going on. I see the palms. I'm assuming something to do with Palm Sunday, maybe. And this kind of reminds us of that same uh, Mithraeum scene that we saw. This looks like it might be a little bit storage, uh, but there's the crucifix back there. Reminds me of a, a similarity with the Tarochtony scene. So that's the scene of the of Mithras slaying the bull. And so here we see Christ slain. So maybe we're going all parallel a maniac here, but we might see a little bit of similarities with we're at church, you know, up in the front, we might see uh, a crucifix similar to, you know, if we were in a Mithraeum, we would see a Tarakton scene. Similar thing, um, you know, altar in the middle. Um, right in the front there, we see incense. Presumably that's incense being burned. So it does look a bit mysterious, especially, you know, if we're unfamiliar with uh, or not personally familiar with Catholicism. So um, there's a few reasons to think that Christianity may have mystery cult origins. So kind of as we alluded to beforehand, strong parallels to mystery cults. And the religious ethos at the time was there was a large influence of, of mystery cults. So it's, it might be natural to think that there's some overlap with Christianity. Um, let's see. And then we'll go into textual references in the Bible that might allude to uh, mystery cult origins. And then also with uh, non-canonical texts. So here's uh, a rundown of some similarities uh, with the cult of Attis. We have him referred to as the good to the good shepherd. We have Christ referred to as the good shepherd. Uh, dies, rises, is, is deified. Our apologist friends might point out that not all of these had to do with dying and rising. Not all gods were dying and rising gods, and that's true, but there are a good number of examples that were. Uh, Mithras really isn't. So a lot of people claim that Mithraism has a dying and rising God. Not so much. Um, let's see. So during the festival of Attis, the high priest, he, uh, he draws his own blood. And that's said to be in lieu of a human sacrifice, uh, which we can see the parallels within Christianity. And then this piece right here where Addis is slain, he's put on a tree and then in a tomb. And then as part of the ritual, they find it empty. And then that's when the, the celebration comes. They drink the wine and the, uh, eat the bread. And then they're considered born again. Um, and then also, um, we may be familiar, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he wrote a famous paper on this when he was in seminary. And um, if, you know, our viewers have time, they should take a look at that where um, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. goes in depth on the similarities with mystery cults.
Yeah, he was obsessed with the comparative mythology, compared Mithras to Jesus. Obviously outdated, but yeah, I think given yeah. his druthers, I think he would have loved being more like Joseph Campbell and less like an activist if he'd had his way. He was he was very yeah, much you, into this stuff. Yeah, you wonder if somehow this informed his activism, right? Mm -hmm. That we see syncretism everywhere. We're all, you know, maybe talking a little bit of the same language. You wonder if that influenced him. Yeah. All right, and the text is here maybe is a little bit small. So we have a reference to the high priest in Hebrews. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. So we wonder if that might not be a mystery cult reference. And then so another similarity, sacred meals. Um, a lot of them have the commonality of bread and wine. So we might counter that maybe that's not as big of a hit as we would want it to be where, I mean, wine was very common, right? Because they didn't know about germs. You could die if you drank, you know, unboiled water and they just didn't do that. And bread was common. But uh, nonetheless, we have a spiritual aspect to bread and wine. And then Tertullian, he, he has this quote here, if my memory still serves me, Mithra there sets his mark on the foreheads of his soldiers, celebrates also the oblation of bread and introduces the image of a resurrection and before a sword wreaths a crown. So here are Tertullian, um, he refers to Mithras' kingdom of Satan. And then also, uh, I have that background image there because we speculate that it might, the mark on the forehead might be a cross. And we're guessing that because crosses were very common uh, within Mithraism. And especially with, they have this lion-headed figure. And he's often depicted as standing on a globe with a cross around it. All right. And this is an example of a church that takes on, a Christian church that takes on Mithraic symbolism. So they take the ruins of a Mithraeum. Here they have a, a lion-headed figure. It's pretty worn out, so it's hard to to see holding some keys. So the the figure of Araman is often depicted, and I think always, in fact, depicted holding keys. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the Church of Saint Peter at Gouts, um, and Aramanius. He's an obscure Greek god of darkness and He's analogous. He's kind of corresponds to Araman of Zoroastrianism. And we might wonder, does Araman appear in Christianity? Right? Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, in fact, he does. So um, here he is um, depicted as being wrapped around a serpent or the lion-headed figure has a serpent wrapped around him. 
Uh, it might allude to the eons, uh, long passing of time, circular. Um, and then the lion head, something to do with danger. Um, you'll see that key that he's holding in the enlarged picture. And he might be analogous to St. Peter as, you know, in the previous slide, they just took it for granted. Yeah, we're looking at Peter here, right? So it's kind of, right. kind of funny that they're drawing the comparison unknowingly. And I wonder if this isn't the origin for the Demiurge depicted as a lion-headed serpent with Aramanius here. Definitely possible, yeah. The other candidate is of uh, the Egyptian Sharnubis, the god of the 13th Deccan. Deacon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here, let's go back to this. Yeah. You know, I wonder if it's not uh, syncretistic. Like, we're dealing with Jungian forms, and mm. to look, to we're thinking about, okay, a god that's not the best. You know, we have two dangerous symbols right the serpent and a lion maybe we're going to equate the two so maybe they can kind of arise independently yeah for sure all right so the example of where we see this in christianity the apocryphon of john so um we might remember this if we're you know into gnosticism i know when i read through it i it totally uh, you know, uh, went over my head. But then I go back and I'm thinking, what's Aramanius? Does that name mean anything? Because it's weird, like, when we're name dropping, it often means something, right? Right, right. And uh, so I'll, we'll just read it here. And it happened one day when John, the brother of James, who are the sons of Zebedee, which is another thing, because who the heck is Zebedee? I wonder if there's not something there. They're also referred to as the Sons of Thunder. Right. I can't put it together what that means. Uh, but maybe one of our viewers can come up with an answer to that. It's always I've always wondered. And had come up to the temple that a Pharisee named Aramanius approached him and said to him, Where is your master whom you followed? And he said to him, he has gone to the place from which he came. And the Pharisee said to him, With deception did this Nazarene deceive you all. And he filled your ears with lies, and closed your hearts, and turned you from the traditions of your fathers. So there's a number of things we can take away from this. Is Maybe um, it seems maybe anti-apocalyptic, where you know, Christ came and went, you know, what happened, right? Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. 
Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. So it kind of might, we might be reminded of the Gospel of Thomas, the kingdom of heaven is all around us, right? That might be a response to apocalypticism or failed apocalyptic uh, prophecy. And yeah, Aramanius, he's uh he's the bad guy. Yeah, right? that's so an obvious pretty, one. Yeah. And um yeah, he's a Pharisee, so they're kind of equating the two. Yeah, and for the audience then uh yeah, John goes crying all butthurt to a cave and Jesus shows up in all these forms, a woman, a man, a child, you know, this sort yeah. of like pyrotechnic show. And then he shows up like a guy and he's like, hey, everything's all right, man. And then he gives him this insane story about the Aeons and Sophia and everything else. Yeah, I know it is wild. And, you know, how these the Nag Hammadi text fits together, that portion reminds us of Thunder Perfect Mind a little bit, right? Where I'm this, I'm that, I'm the polar opposites together. Mm-hmm. And we're wondering, are they really opposite, right? Are you know, we can think of these things together, right? And um, yeah, I mean, that's a good allusion to the pyrotechnic show because we're wondering why is it called Thunder Perfect Mind? There it yeah, is. Well, right? I mean, obviously, yeah, when the Hellenistic world, when a god showed up, it doesn't matter if it was Jesus or Venus, it was your sanity would crack. It was basically you either break or bend. It was like, so, yeah, like seeing Elvis or something. <laughs> yeah. So we have uh, the Apocrypha of John. This is early, uh, eighty-five to ninety A.D., and it's mentioned by Irenaeus. Irenaeus. Um, so it would have to be, you know, before Against Heresies was written. So couldn't possibly be later than that because it existed before. And we might have, um, you know, according to uh, John D. Turner, this uh-huh. might be pre-Sethian, what he referred to as uh, Barbelloite tradition, right? So we have um, this Jewish tradition where we might be familiar with wisdom in Proverbs being um, anthropomorphized as a woman. And just as we look and see Christophany in the Old Testament, they may have seen, you know, uh, Sophiafri, if I'm, <laughs> I'm just making up the word, but they might have seen Sophia in the Old Testament in Proverbs. And that's where we get the idea of Barbello, perhaps. 
Yeah, and I think uh, Stephen Davis, he writes that, yeah, you have the Christian part as bookends, and then Jesus shows up and kind of gives talks to John, but you could take all of that out and you would have a completely Jewish, non-Jewish, uh, non-Christian text with the, you know, the aeons and all that and the flood story. So it's, he thinks it's could have been a Christian that adopted these uh, mystic Jewish stories or cosmologies or whatever. That's another theory. Yeah. So we're thinking like, according to that, there was Christianity totally separate from judaism and then they just kind of adopted it yeah there were these sethians yeah. and they were non-christian and christianity adopted the apocryphon of john and added jesus and john to different parts but yeah as religions do they're very uh synchronistic right yeah, yeah, yeah. so just like the whole uh messian messianism that's for like the Zoroastrians had it first, right? So just as the Messiah is supposed to descend from David, the Zoroastrian Messiah is supposed to uh, descend from Zoroaster, right? And he's going to come to judge the living and the dead, right? He's going to bring out the end of the world. That sounds very Christian. So it's almost like Judaism has Zoroastrianism. And then Christianity added a little bit more of Zoroastrianism. And that's how they got uh, you know, the other aspects of it. Exactly, yeah. Again, many streams, many ideologies, all religions were fluid and fragmented. There's no, <clears throat> yeah. And when in doubt, just go Jungian. Go with the collective <laughs> unconscious and wash your hands. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's a good uh, description of kind of what I do. It's almost <laughs> like... Uh, Jurassic Park, how they fill in the DNA right, with right. frog blood or frog DNA. That's you just fill in Jung with with the gaps. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the world of symbols and archetypes came in. <laughs> so here we have a verse in Romans, and for me, this is among the weakest examples of uh, mystery religion in Christianity, but I'm struck by how the reading of this fits better under, or at least from my perspective, under a mystery school understanding rather than Orthodox Christianity. So I'll read this here. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, or death like his, we will certainly be be united with him in a resurrection like his for we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with and we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin so a few things that stand out to me because anyone who has died has been set free from sin that's not really the whole, I don't know, I thought sin was death, that if you're dead, you're not free from sin. And then we're united in a death like his, that almost we could do some eisegesis in this, right? And say, maybe we're reenacting the death of Christ as a ritual, right? That we're, we're united with him in death and also resurrection, 
right? So we could think of us going through a mystery school play, right, as the initiation. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Paul definitely has all the the hints and underpinnings of a mystery religion when he's talking. Obviously, he's writing letters. Obviously, he has to be secretive. We don't know what the exact uh rituals they were doing in truth but uh there's smoke there's there must be some fire somewhere yeah it seems like he's talking about an ecstatic religion where jesus enters you and you speak and you probably really just zone out (laughs) and he went to the third heaven he didn't do that by you know taking an uber he had to do something to get out of his mind (laughs) yeah or yeah he he knows a guy right but (laughs) For a I friend, mean, that's what he's doing. He's famous. Yeah, for a, asking for a friend. <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's good. All right. So now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So I read into that almost like a, a Delphic, uh, what do we want to call that? A, a riddle, Delphic riddle. Mm-hmm. And he was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. I don't know. It might be nothing, but uh, we can kind of do some eisegesis to that and make it seem like a mystery school talk. So here's an interesting part of the synoptics. So it appears in all the synoptics, not John though. And I wonder if we don't have some kind of code going on. So in each of them, they'll have very similar language and they'll have two stories like this. So Jesus says, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went and found it, just like he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owner asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. So you wonder if it's not like um, the Stonecutters episode of The Simpsons, right. where if I, I shake your hand this way, if, right. uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, classic episode. And it's it seems like maybe it's set up, right? That there's a colt there, he needs the colt, and you'll know the person that you're supposed to give it to because right. he'll say the Lord needs it, mm-hmm. right? Where... If we think, no, there's a lot of times where the the apostles and people really don't act like we would expect people to act, so we can maybe take this with a grain of salt. But someone comes up to you and asks, hey, just a stranger, can I borrow your car? You'd say no. And they say, well, the Lord needs it. Oh, well, okay, have at it, right? Makes sense. And then here's the second example of also appears throughout the or in each of the synoptics he replied as you enter the city a man carrying a jar of water will meet you follow him to the house that he enters 
and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you to a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So we wonder if, you know, it kind of reminds us of who's that figure um, of Tiana? Apollonius. Apollonius of Tyana, where he's telling people to do strange things and it all works out. Mm-hmm. So you wonder if we're not having something similar going on here. Yeah. And then in the epistles, we have it, uh, Christianity referred to specifically as a mystery. Um, I have become its servant by the commission God gave to me to present you the word of God in its fullness. And then also here, fullness might be an allusion to Gnosticism, right? The pleroma. Exactly. God and its pleroma. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ in you. In you. You wonder if that's uh, a reference to the Eucharist, maybe. But uh, it's a mystery that has been kept hidden from the ages. And then there's the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, this, in some respect, appears in each of the Gospels. So I wonder if this might not be historical. Maybe it's a huge leap, right? But uh, it's something a little bit odd. And it's, uh, it's all over the place. So we'll see the version in Mark. And then, you know, we can talk about the version of of john which is a little bit different and when he was alone those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables and he said to them to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of god but for those outside everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven which is a bit weird. I thought Christ's mission was to forgive everyone who had faith and to <laughs> spread spread the message to everyone. So that's, yeah. I don't know, yeah. you might wonder what's going on. Yeah, and again, remember what I said about Bart Ehrman and religions. You woke up, you sacrificed, you gave money to this God, you prayed mechanically. You know what I mean? This is a lot different. This is just your typical late antiquity cultish practice yeah yeah well he had an exoteric teaching and an esoteric teaching right and that that this is what it's saying and then the apostles supposedly had powers to heal and so forth but not everybody did so clearly there were like two sides so that's kind (laughs) of what does robert price say for the for the pew potatoes Mm -hmm. (laughs) right exoteric for the pew potatoes there you go yeah and if you remember um one of the disciples comes up to Jesus and says, there's people healing in your name. What should we tell them? 
So, I mean, it's weird that we have another group of Christians that, at least according to this story, are operating independently of Christ, right? And doing miracles in the name of Christ. So you wonder how many sides there were. Well, as many have said today, there were these uh, wandering uh, spiritual freelancers or entrepreneurs or magicians. You talk Apollonius, Jesus, Simon Magus, Paul. You know what I mean? I think there were these mm-hmm. guru and, you know, Egypt had all these Egyptian priests that were looking for work. So it was there, you know, it was the gig economy of those days. If you, <laughs> people <needed>. consultants. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So you you spread these ancient mysteries that were kind of dying away. There were, you know, there was the yeah. Jews versus Gentiles too. Jesus uh, at first was his message was only for the Jews, not for the Gentiles, and then that seemed to change. Um, all right, so here's the version in John. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them, which is weird. So he's setting it up so that he doesn't heal them. There's some kind of mystery, right? So we wonder, yeah, like, like you said, if there's not a teaching that's inside and a teaching that's outside, right? And the parables are something maybe, connected to what's being taught inside but it's not what's being taught inside it's like a it's like a paywall right <laughs> yeah you gotta have a stripe account to get those mysteries <laughs> <laughs> and then we have the messianic secret and this is all over the place in mark he gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So uh, this is with the healing of the 12-year-old girl, right? Said, don't tell anyone about this. All right, there we are. And um, when when he said to him, see that you tell no one anything but go, Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses prescribed. That will be proof for them. And so this is the healing of the man with leprosy. And he says, don't tell anybody except just present yourself healed and that will be proof enough. And he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter said to them in reply, you are the Messiah. Then he warned them not to tell anyone about him. And we have a parallel, right, in the Gospel of Thomas, right? Who do you compare me to? I cannot compare you to anybody, which that might be a little bit more esoteric. But uh, Peter's not supposed to tell people he's the Messiah, which I thought that was the whole point of the Gospel. And then this, uh, the kiss of peace or holy kiss, This is very early. So this is in uh, the epistles all over the place. So greet one another with a holy kiss. So we wonder if this is not some kind of, you know, like uh, if you know about La Cosa Nostra, Mm -hmm. 
that used to be their thing. Like if you're in La Cosa Nostra, you kiss each other when you meet, but they've since done away with that because it's the feds know that. So that's like kind of like a giveaway. <laughs> yeah, they are but, a secret society or were a secret <laughs> society, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Gospel of Philip people go, oh my God, Jesus is kissing Mary on the mouth. They're an item. It could also mean that she's an initiate and he's handing her this signal or secret gnosis to her too yeah or i mean breathing the spirit into her right right yeah it could be many things except you know a romance yeah could be a romance we don't know <laughs> yeah i mean i could go crazy with the speculation that uh you know maybe and this is just wild crazy speculation right totally ungrounded but you know what if just as Christ is the embodiment of the Logos, Mary is the embodiment of Sophia, of, of wisdom, course, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Without a doubt. So another thing that lends us to believe that this is some kind of uh, ritualistic thing, um, it's only for the baptized. So you wouldn't greet someone with a holy kiss unless they were also baptized Christian. And then, so here is the apostolic tradition. This is an early text. Uh, it's one of the earlier texts, uh, like we have here, like the Didache. Mm -hmm. And um, the the title seems to be in the um, the last page of one of the the, ver the texts that survive. It may have been called the Ordinances of the Holy Apostles, given through Hippolytus. And um, we have a quote from it. And when the catechumens, and that means initiate. So a catechumen is uh, someone who is hopeful to becoming a Christian, to be initiated into Christianity. Uh, finish their prayers. Uh, they must not give the kiss of peace, for their kiss is not yet pure. So unless you're Christian, your kiss isn't pure. Only believers shall salute one another, but men with men and women with women. A man shall not salute a woman. Hmm. And we also have some other references in the apostolic tradition. And so the apostolic tradition, it basically is like a, it's describing the rituals of the church, like how to do your baptisms, how to, you know, make priests, right? The laying, we're doing some laying out of hands. Um, so th this is a, a mystery here. Uh, yet, if there is any other thing that ought to be told to converts, let the bishop impart it to them privately after their baptisms. Let not unbelievers know it until, they're, until they are baptized. This is the white stone of which John said, There is upon it a new name written, which no one knoweth, but he that receiveth the stone. What is even going on here, right? So there's a new name written on a stone, and nobody knows it except for he that receives it. So this is an allusion to Revelation. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden mana. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So, I don't know. Like, that's just weird. I can't think. I'm trying to wrap my head and, like, speculate as to what that could refer to. You have any ideas? I don't know. No. See, I wonder. I'm like, sure there's uh, lots. Of th I'm sure there's about 50 theories out there. Yeah. Yeah. Part of me wonders if it's not the name, like a new name for the individual, which it could be. Right. But it's the name of, let's say, the Archon, that if you have its name, you're able to descend through that sphere. That's a good one. Yeah, that's definitely possible. Yeah, that's why they carried these things. Well, Catholics do get uh, a new name when they're confirmed. They have the uh, Christian name, right? The Or whatever you call it, the confirmed name. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe it is just a, they're just simply giving them a new name, but there's some metaphor with a stone going on. Yeah. I got cheated, though. I didn't get a white stone when I got <laughs> confirmation. <laughs> so here's the gist of the initiation. I mean, I, that's my word that I'm putting on this. But uh, uh, this is how you essentially become a Christian. Like you become a member of the congregation according to this tradition. So uh, the catechumate, which is somebody that's looking to join, right? And I think in some churches that's, that term is still used. Uh, there's intense instruction into Christianity and how it works. and it's supposed to last for, I think they, they recommend three years, but it can be sooner. And we might draw a parallel to the mystery cults where there's a long period of, you know, testing before you're initiated. Mm -hmm. And just like uh, fraternities, right? There's like a, a pledging period. Yeah, right? yeah, preparation, yeah. Probably fasting, all that, yeah. Yeah, well, they call it catechism now in the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. And you're you're learning like they'll ask you a question and then you answer it with the yeah. you know, the ritualistic response or right what do you want like a pre written response and nuns with rulers because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. slammed if you don't answer it correctly <laughs> yeah I mean that almost seems a little bit uh, I don't know the the nun is going to slap you. If you get it wrong, it's high well, stakes. They didn't do that when I was in catechism, so I'm only kidding. Yeah. Okay, good, good. And um, so uh, another kind of weird feature that, you know, is different from today, daily exorcism. So you're expected to be exercised by a priest every day. And then... As you're, you know, becoming closer to your baptism, it needs to be a bishop that exercises you mm. every day. So it's, I don't know, we're really worried about evil spirits, I guess, that you have to I be. I think so. Good. It definitely should be brought back. I mean, as we've talked on the show in metaphysics, those archons or witik or mind parasite, they're, 
they're inside of you. They're like parasites. So it's a daily thing. You got to get them out of there. At least make yeah. the ritual, the exercise that to, you know, strengthen your mind and your heart to go out to the day and do your best. So. Um, yeah. Smart. And they were, they were also, smarter. <laughs> yeah. They knew what they were doing. And uh, they were also worried about bread, like bread having uh, demons or Satan in it. So they would always want to exercise the bread or, or bless the bread before they ate it, even like j just during regular meals. And before the baptism, there was a period of fasting. Kill the demiurge in your head. That's good advice. Douglas Packard. Yeah. Don't use a gun. Do it with <laughs> a ritual. Yeah, please, please. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Exorcism is really the way to go. Yeah, yeah. So there's another exorcism immediately before baptism where the priest says, let all spirits depart far from thee. Mm -hmm. And we'll run into something similar later to that uh, expression. And then we're anointed with the oil of exorcism. So just as there's like um, chism, the anointing oil that's, uh, you know, mm -hmm. Some traditions have it, like when you're um, confirmed, you're anointed with uh, special oil. This is the oil of exorcism. So this is kind of the, the opposite end of it. So you got to be sure there's no devils in you before you're <laughs> baptized. Yeah, yeah. And, and then another notable thing, three baptisms and oh, one wow. for each each person of the Trinity. So they're they're naming it like, you know, in the name of the Father, right? You're baptized in the name of the Son, Holy Spirit. And then there's the laying on of hands. And then you're anointed with the oil of thanksgiving on the forehead. It's not gravy, is it? <laughs> How's that? That's not gravy, is it? The oil of thanksgiving. <laughs> you have to That's watch the Dallas funny. Cowboys. Yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah, as, as I was putting this together, I didn't put that together that, yeah, the oil of Sorry. Thanksgiving. Couldn't help yeah, it. Yeah, that's good. I can imagine uh, some gravy being used, you know. Um, so we have the, the highlights here, the kiss of peace. Um, so after here, I'll, I'll just go back a little bit. So after they're anointed with the gravy, <laughs> the, on their forehead. Just kidding. Don't take that seriously. Um, then they're given the kiss of peace or holy kiss. So that's actually a part of the the ritual. And then uh, another uh, another odd thing. So they eat uh, bread and water along with milk and honey and wine. So there's bread and water, milk, honey and wine and they drink from each three times so i, th I think it's eats bread that's one and then separately from that it's the water milk honey combination and wine and you sip from it so there's like a total of nine sips that you're taking and this is uh, attested to in uh tertullian against marcion um, and Clement of Alexandria. They both mentioned the, the custom 
of uh, giving Christians milk and honey. So it's both for, you know, the proper food for infants and also allusion to the promised land, the land of milk and honey in the Old Testament. All right, so where we're at so far, we see parallels with the mystery cults. There's, in the Synoptic Gospels, the Lord slash teacher requires it. The Messianic secret. We see verses that may be taken as hints to a mystery cult. The apostolic tradition, which alludes to a ritual, it's different than how we know it today, more involved. And the concept of outsiders just don't get it. That's in each of the four Gospels. So there's a, the Book of Jew. So this is a Nag Hammadi text. It's That's also called not. the... How's that? No, it, no, it's actually outside. It's not found in the Nag Hammadi Library. It was discovered in the 19th century. You I know think what? It's part of Askew yeah. or Perus. Yeah. You know what? And actually, it's. I say that in my next slide. But uh, so, yeah, it's not Nag Hammadi. I'm conflating it with the rest of them. But, um, but yeah, I go into that. It's, yeah. Um, so, this is very much an initiation ritual. Um, and then there's a lot of similarities uh, with the apostolic tradition. And uh, preceded by fasting, just as we saw. And then, he, so here's an interesting thing. Crucifying the world, which saves from the archons of this eon. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's not Gnostic, right? And we're crucifying the world, so it's kind of flipped on its head. Uh, so we have this uh, quote from the book of Jew. This is the teaching in which dwells the whole knowledge. The living Jesus answered and said to his disciples, Blessed is he who has crucified the world and who has not the world to crucify him. So we wonder if, you know, this is a bit of speculation, if being crucified by the world is the outside, the exoteric understanding and crucifying the world is the esoteric understanding, right? I like that, yeah. And there you have it, you veterans of a thousand psychic wars. A fun and enlightening convo with Elliot. And it continues in our second part. It's no longer a mystery, Sarah McLaughlin. Please support this Red Pill Cafeteria for the full show and if you find any value in the content. It will cost you less than a buck per episode, and that's a deal of your many lifetimes. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics are more critical than ever in this Philip K. Dick world in Gnostic times. But this is our time to shine like crazy diamonds. We high priests and priestesses of Hermes, the god of thieves, and Sophia, the goddess of smugglers. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.
special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.